Today, we are sponsored by Provider Solutions and Development, a community of experts dedicated to offering holistic career coaching to physicians and clinicians throughout the entire job search. Start the conversation today at psdrecruit.com forward slash curbsiders. The Curbsiders have partnered with VCU Health Continuing Education to offer free continuing education credits for physicians and other healthcare professionals. Check out curbsiders.vcuhealth.org to create your free account and to start claiming CE credit. The Curbsiders podcast is for entertainment, education, and information purposes only, and the topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any diseases or conditions. Furthermore, the views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of the host and should not be interpreted to reflect official policy or position of any entity, aside from possibly cash like moral hospital and affiliate outreach programs, if indeed there are any. In fact, there are none. Pretty much, we are responsible if you screw up. You should always do your own homework and let us know when we're wrong. Paul... Let's get started. We we have a jam-packed episode. We're talking about skin tonight. This is part one of our skin turnship, Paul, which I know I know you approve of the name, so I'm not even going to ask. It's also <laughs> gross. Like we're doing skin turnship. We have skin turnists. I was actually almost used the phrase marathon of skin, which also just seems but, awful. So like there's just there's no not gross way to talk. Sounds about like this. a weird European horror film. Well, Paul, you know you'll be. You you will be glad to know that we keep it above the waist tonight. Actually, above the shoulders. We're really we we talked about we had this really ambitious script. We were going to talk about like you know head to toe, but we ended up just talking about the scalp and the face. It turns out there's a ton to talk about there, and uh, a lot of stuff that I had no idea about. So our guest is the wonderful Dr. Helena Pacheca. But Paul, I'm forgetting how this works. Can you tell people what do, what do we do on the show? I had a legit moment of like panic, like palpitations, a little bit of flop sweat, because I thought you were going to blow past just my one moment to shine. So thank you for asking. We are the Internal Medicine Podcast. There are others. Some of them even have curbside in the name, but we are the original. Um, we use expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and practice changing knowledge. And tonight, as you mentioned, we talk all about skin and specifically the skin, mostly above the level of the shoulders. And you're going to tell us about our amazing guest who is familiar to some of our listeners. But before I do that, and uh, by the way, Paul, I love that just... Uh, just just that little bit of a nudge to the uh, shout out to the other podcasts who are all wonderful. It's going to be my pick of the week. Yep. <laughs> it was a lesson in shade. Yes. Uh, so you're hearing the voice, of course, of our of our veteran producer and uh, artist, uh, pun enthusiast, Beth Garbs Garbatelli. <laughs> uh, she runs our Twitter. Beth, thank you so much for joining us. And thank you for uh, having me. Yeah, tell them what what are what are we going to talk about on the show tonight specifically? What specific conditions? Um, we we get into so much, um, and this episode was originally going to cover even more, um, but on this episode we'll be talking about acne, rosacea, um, seborrheic dermatitis, um, to name a few, alopecia. Um, just kind of the concerns that people will come into your office when they've got skin changes on their face and their scalp. We have a fantastic conversation with our favorite skin turnist, our chief of dermatology at Cashlack Memorial Hospital, Dr. Helena Pacheca, MD. She is board certified in internal medicine and dermatology and the director of inpatient and consultative dermatology at MedStar Washington Hospital Center and MedStar Georgetown University Hospital. Dr. Pacheca obtained her medical degree from the University of Washington 
School of Medicine, an internal medicine residency at the University of Michigan, and a dermatology residency at Johns Hopkins University. She also obtained a master's of science in biostats and clinical research design from the University of Michigan. Michigan Rackham Graduate School and Translational Research Fellowship at Johns Hopkins Hospital. Wowza. So without further ado, please enjoy this very lively discussion about skin with Dr. Helena Pacheca. Helena, thank you so much for joining us again. We are going to talk a lot of skin tonight, but first remind the audience who are you and tell them a one-liner about yourself. So I'm Helena Pacheca. I'm a duly boarded internist and dermatologist, and I'm a currently a dermatology hospitalist. I practice at uh, Cashlack Memorial, seeing inpatient consults and performing complex medical dermatology outpatient visits uh, and seeing referrals. And I, my pick of the week or my one-liner is that I think last time I was on the show, I had just gotten chickens and I just wanted to report they are a smashing success. So I recommend. Amazing. Yeah. And I um, I discovered Hamilton just recently. <laughs> and so I'm forcing all my residents to hum along with me in clinic and on rounds. And I I'll, I will assume by Hamilton, you mean Weird Al's polka mashup of Hamilton songs. Obvi- obviously. <laughs> obviously. Paul, I'm going to see how many times I can mention that on the show. <laughs> yeah. Whereas my weird flex is that I've only heard one song from Hamilton and that's all. I'm, it's now just a point of pride. Paul, not join me. <laughs> join me. Come out from under the rock. No. <laughs> it's really a lot of fun, actually. It's really amazing. And so I'm trying to read. Actually, my pick of the week, I guess, would be the book. I'm actually now reading the the biography. Okay, that's a great pick. Uh, does Beth? Do you want to give a pick? Real, uh, I'll, I'll limit you to one pick of the week, Beth. Okay, I know I your I style. I know I your style. I usually have like six <laughs> picks of the week. Um, no, I will give a pick of the week, and it's a recipe again. It's the Food Lab Ultra Gooey Stovetop Mac and Cheese. Um, and I feel like I can get away with recommending this on a skin episode. It's not like we're doing like lipids or heart disease, <laughs> um, but it's a really good mac and cheese recipe. I mean, I'm kind of a, a fan of the old faithful box mac and cheese. Like you can't go wrong with Annie's, but this one is the best that I've ever discovered. And it's from um, Kenji Lopez-Alt, who's a great food writer and chef and author. So highly recommend it. I'm sorry. Did you? And just, what are the cheeses? Yeah. Did you just suggest so you can, that homemade mac and cheese is is equal to the box mac and cheese that you buy? <laughs> I, I did. Well, that's because I feel like I've had a lot of mediocre homemade mac and cheeses. Uh, I see. Like really dry and not good. Like or unsalted. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They're just. Yeah. I feel like I've had a lot of bad ones, but this one is a great recipe, and you can do a mix of whatever cheeses you like. Um, I like eight ounces of um, American, eight ounces of Fontina, and eight ounces of not seriously sharp, sharp cheese, like sharp cheddar. She likes light, light, easygoing cheddar. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> my, my mother-in-law, and I am going to be, I'm going to be in good graces for saying this because I think sometimes she listens to the show. She makes some amazing mac and cheese, homemade mac and cheese. Uh, nice. Yes. That was actually, it's, it's very good. So. Uh, maybe I'll share that recipe too. Actually, I don't know. I don't know if I have authorization to do that. So we, Paul, we better move on to a case because we have a a very ambitious script. We're going to talk literally from head to toe about the skin, which I'm very excited about. Yeah. So shall I start with case number one? It's going to blow right past the pun. Hey, is a career change part of your strategy for the future? 
Well, our sponsor, Provider Solutions and Development, has a team of experts ready to guide you through today's physician job landscape. With over 20 years of experience, they are committed to finding you the right team, the perfect setting, and the work you are meant to do. PSND's in-house recruiters are not focused on quotas, and they do not work on commission. Whether this is your moment to shine, pivot directions, or discover something new, Provider Solutions and Development has access to hundreds of opportunities across the country. So reach out today at psdrecruit.com forward slash curbsiders. So let's talk. Let's let's talk about it. Oh, you have now to we, read the name. That's a rule. No, I no, I, I I fully intend to. I mean, I feel like the audience recognizes and respects at this point that these names are not my creation. So I don't. <laughs> there's no shame in my game. We will talk about uh, Ms. Ali Pisha. Um, I'm pausing for the laughter. <laughs> She is a 42-year-old female, she's a 42-year-old black female with no major health conditions who presents to your outpatient clinic with ongoing hair loss. She is worried and she is self-conscious. She works as an attorney and her role is very client-facing. She confides that she has been under increased stress lately. She brings you a bag of hair and she's noticed that increased hair loss diffusely on her scalp. When looking at her scalp, because we're good doctors, we're actually starting with a physical examination. Her physical exam shows intact but empty hair follicles and no evidence of scaling, erythema, or scarring. And I feel, um, Helena, this is alopecia is something that comes up a lot in primary care and is often uh, maybe a little bit frustrating, at least to me. I won't sort of um, generalize it to everybody because you feel a little bit powerless about it. And it's almost immediately a referral to dermatology. So maybe you can help me um, do a better job of, with my own patients before immediately referring them out. So how how do you approach alopecia in patients? Yeah, I'm, this is actually this is a great topic because we see so much of it and we're seeing so much of it more now. Um, people are very stressed. There's COVID, there's homeschooling, there's working from home, there's just a lot going on. Um, and so uh, I, I laughed when I saw this and I thought, oh my gosh, of course, like my favorite, the bag of hair clinic <laughs> patient, you know, um, which is a real thing. And and we do see it a lot. So, um, so before I say any more, right, I just have to get this out, that loss of 50 to 200 hairs a day is totally normal. So thank you for letting me get that off my chest. <laughs> okay. <laughs> So Feels excessive. In, in terms of like thinking about alopecia or hair thinning or hair loss or hair fall, um, people call it different things. I really like to think about it in terms of whether things are scarring or non-scarring. And the reason this matters is because scarring hair loss is potentially permanent, right? Whereas non-scarring types of hair loss have all the potential to regrow. Um, and your index of suspicion for the scarring types of hair loss are going to be in those folks with deeper skin tones, textured, kinky, coily hair types. Um, and so you kind of want to always think about your patient holistically. You want to, you know, consider your host, your patient, you know, how old are they? What's their background? And then I would really want to ask this person, you know, I think you said that there's intact but empty hair follicles, but no evidence of scaling, erythema, or scarring. But what are they experiencing? Are they having itching, burning, tingling, any lymph nodes, like lumps or bumps? Um, pins and needles sensation is really common. And of course, as part of your exam, I'm sure you felt for lymphadenopathy because you're an excellent internist there. So that would denote like a fungal etiology. You get really bulky lymphadenopathy sometimes with that. More common in a child, but I have seen it in the adults. And then whenever you're looking at the scalp, there's so much other good information around hair bearing sites. So I'm always, the second I walk in the door, I'm looking at their eyebrows, their eyelashes. If it's a gentleman, I, like, I look in their beard, their mustache. 
And a, like a good dermatologist or even somebody who's attuned to looking at the skin can tell like that, you know, if there's a patch of alopecia, you know, in one of those other hair bearing sites on the face. And so you look very, very closely at the scalp. And so if you were to part her hair, if you were to part her hair, you'd see there's this widening of the part. And the reason I bring this up is for the differential. But she's also got these like little black dots throughout. And she's got this very shiny appearance. And there's this purple background. And so with every talk I give, I try to show lots of different skin tones and types. I think that's part of our duty in medicine, especially in dermatology. But you can see here that there's this purple color if you train your eye, even on her brown skin. And I think we have another photo kind of zooming in. And so you're looking very closely. And this is just with your your naked eye. This is not a trichoscopy. This is not magnified in any way. So what you do is you look and you say, is there a follicular ostea, a hole in an expected hair everywhere I expect to see one, right? And you can see here, she's got this background of erythema. It's subtle on her brown skin, but she's got complete follicular dropout and that shine to it. And this is a scarring process. And this scarring process is called central centrifugal cicatricial alopecia, mouthful. So we call it CCCA. And the inflammatory reaction has chewed up all of her follicles and they're long gone never to recover. Okay, so that is one thing that you would refer to a dermatologist immediately because time is hair and that can be very traumatic for some people, very emotionally disturbing. But, you know, like we've learned that she's asymptomatic and you've looked at her nails and there's no pitting and there's no lymphadenopathy, there's no inflammation, no bogginess to her scalp and no areas of frank follicular dropout or scarring. So this is super. This is really good news for her because that puts her very squarely in the non-scarring alopecia category. Okay, but then like, what is it, right? So there's sort of three things that can be most likely. Um, androgenic alopecia, which we used to call male pattern uh, hair loss, but the ladies don't like that so much. So it's androgenic alopecia. Um, there's telogen effluvian, which we always think about as being like the stress shedding, right? And then there's alopecia areata. And those are all non-scarring types of hair loss or hair thinning. And do you want to walk through those sort of one by one, the clinical features? Yeah. I, and what you're looking for? I think, okay. I think we should, yeah. So the, the let's start with the most common and, and then we can go through, or or we can go by the order of the pictures. There's there's I should mention to the audience that sometimes we'll be referring to pictures, which you'll be able to see in the show notes here, like when we were talking about the the scarring alopecia with this with this first case. So there will be pictures that we refer to from time to time. Helena, which which one would you like to start with? Yeah, let me just give you like a tasty bite, right? Like <laughs> what's going to help me in clinic? What's going to help me keep moving? So one of those things that you can start with whenever a patient is complaining of hair loss is to have them do a central park or you, you can take the back of a cotton-tipped applicator and sort of do the part for them and take a look. Mm-hmm. And one of the screening tests that you can ask them is like, have you noticed that your part is widening? right? And so there's actually this Sinclair scale for female pattern hair loss, androgenic alopecia. And you can see there's various stages. I won't get way into the weeds on this. But you can see with androgenic alopecia, this part tends to widen and you see more of the scalp. And you tend to see that same shininess that you see in bald men because you can actually, there's upregulation of the sebaceous glands and it actually makes your hair a little bit shiny, which or your scalp a little bit shiny, which is kind of fun. If you go to the next picture, what you can see here is you know, again, this is actually a trichoscopy picture. Use a, a, a magnifying glass here. But what you can see is these individual hair calibers are all different diameters. Can you guys see that? 
And you can see this with your naked eye too. It's kind of not fair that I picked this picture, but I wanted to show it really well. So you see that there's really not any inflammation or bogginess or really even follicular dropout. Everywhere you think there's supposed to be a hair here, there is one, except that some of them are really, you know, thick and broad and other of them are really fine and spindly, right? So they have this difference in their diameter. And so that's what's really typical in, in androgenic alopecia. And, you know, everyone to some degree will have some of this with age. So at least 80% of Caucasian men and 50% of women will have this by the age of 70 years. So I tell people that their hair is just kind of retiring, right? It's reached a certain age. It deserves to retire too. And so that's that's one thing that it could be. In another photograph, the next photograph. Oh, and before while while we're switching photographs, I just wanted to mention that the what we're talking about with the women for this androgenetic alopecia, the how it's more on the top of the head versus with men where you get just like the crown, that that patch in the back or the the sides kind of by the temples, right? It's a it's a different Yeah, so women it tends to that. be very it tends to be very sort of at the crown. And then other women will also notice a little bit at the temples as well. Okay. But never, never in women do people end up completely bald in the way that, that men can do. Right. Um, in this next picture, you can see that here, again, you're looking at the scalp first. I don't see any background erythema. This is a Caucasian patient. That should be easy to see. There's no scale. There's really no follicular dropout. And the caliber of all these hairs is about the same diameter, right? It just is a little bit thinner than the patient is used to. Another quick and dirty tool that you can use in your clinic is to ask them if they have um, decreased ponytail caliber. Like sometimes women will know I have to loop my hairband three times and now I have to loop it four times or something. Um, and, And what this is, is this is that classic sort of telogen effluvium. Okay, this is the stress shedding. So what's happening here? You know, unlike mammals that go through a molt, right? Hair cycling in humans is asynchronous, right? So each follicle has its own independent cycle. And so consequently, a fairly uniform number of hairs is falling out every day. But with metabolic alterations like pregnancy, malnutrition, other stresses, um, even just emotional stresses sometimes, it's capable of kind of altering that biologic clock and altering that programming. And so what's happening is that your hair cycles were doing this before. And what I actually do with my hands when I'm talking to patients is I do this. Yeah. And so it sort of pushes all of those hairs into their natural shedding cycle but it pushes them into it a little bit earlier than they would have gone before and a little bit more in concert with each other. And so you do, like this is very typical after pregnancy. Most women can relate to that. Um, And we see this a lot and we're seeing it a lot because of COVID. People are very, very, very stressed. Yeah. And then, so for alopecia areata, which I think is our next picture. Oh, here is a nice picture um, where we've actually compared the two side by side. And I love that. Um, because it's a very subtle thing when you first start looking at it to see the difference in the hair caliber size, but it, it's a it's a really good clue. Mm-hmm. And then with the next one, so alopecia, alopecia areata, again, you're going to look at all those hair bearing areas on the face. This is the patient that will come in and say, I, I, I have, I'm balding. And then they kind of do this, like they're looking for their spot, yeah. <laughs> right? Because it feels completely smooth and they can almost feel it rather than they can see it. And then when you look at that, you can see that there's this really d- well-defined, finite spot of, of missing hair. 
And again, it's an, you can see it's a non-scarring process, very like no erythema whatsoever on this patient. And if you were to get your, your magnifying glass out, you would see that all of the follicular ostea, the little holes are still there. There's nothing you know, obliterated about it. You can see it doesn't have that shine. Um, and in the next picture, I show something really fun. So this is my, one of our patients at Cashlack. And we treated her. And as we were treating her, do you see all these little fine baby white hairs? Okay. Do you see those? Kind of right behind the ear? Yes. Little Vela's fine white ones. Is she wearing a mask? So it's actually, <laughs> she's wearing a mask because we are into, you know. Oh, these are very COVID recent. Okay. <laughs> they are very, Cashlack is a busy place. It They've is got busy. Lots of patients, <laughs> all kinds of things. Um, but that's actually a really neat feature because the autoimmune process that's causing this knocks out not only the hair follicle itself, but the melanin that pigments the hair. And so as it starts to grow back and as you start to have regrowth, it's often sort of silvery white. So this is a really promising sign that this patient is responding to treatment, which is kind of fun. I just wanted to show that. Awesome. Can I ask, since Stuart's not here, can I ask just an insane question that you may not know the answer to? But with telogen effluvium, it, that feels like some sort of evolutionary maladaptation. You know what I mean? Like there seems mm-hmm. like that has to have happened for some reason. Has any, like, is there any understanding as to what adaptation would happen that stress would just make all your hair fall out at the same time like is there i realize that there's probably no well, answer to this but as you a know i don't know seems- i don't know i mean there's there's amazing hair biologists in dermatology and i would give all of them a shout out like one of my mentors in my residency program was actually a hair use the hair biology to to think about making different kinds of acral skin on stump sites for amputees like it's an amazing oh, wow. metabolic and uh, biologic sort of tool to study so i'm gonna like not do this justice. There's so much about it. But what I will say is, you know, your hair is turning over metabolically almost, you know, like your gut. What is the thing about the gut? Like it's new every 30 days or something or every 10 days or five days. I'm going to get this wrong too. But um, it's very metabolically active. And I think that when your body is trying to heal or combat stress or Um, like, so for example, let's say you have an infection of some kind that is very metabolically challenging and tasking, you know, nutritional things as well. And so I think hair is just one of the first things to go. It's consuming a lot of resources and it's turning over all the time. And I think your body evolutionarily is probably just like, you know what, we can just change our timeline. That's fine. Um, (laughs) Get this back later. That's kind of what I tell patients too. And the nice thing, so for, to go back to our patient, right? Um, did I remember that she's under a lot of stress? Is that what we talked about? Did. Yep. Yeah. So she's under a lot of stress. We don't see any scarring. Her nails look fine. She doesn't have any other patches of alopecia. You've asked her or even looked at her axilla and pubic areas as well. And so, you know, as long as she doesn't have like that decreased and variable hair caliber, um, I think she's probably just having what's called, you know, stress shedding. Um, If she's been pregnant before, then she has a point of reference and you can use that for counseling because most women do have some of this and they may remember it. But otherwise, what's really nice about this is you can tell her that she has her complete full potential to grow all of this hair back and it's just going to take time and that this is like a doctor's prescription to go take care of her own well-being. Helena, I, when I was reading about this, so we're, we're mainly talking about non-scarring alopecia types. That's what we, we just ran through here. And there was, there was some suggestion that there may be a lab workup looking for thyroid, thinking about, does, is this lupus? Is this syphilis? Is there mm-hmm. iron deficiency? How, how crazy should we go in primary care with the, with the workup? Do we need to do any workup at all? 
Yeah, that's a great question. You know, I like to do a limited workup for this. Um, but for the love of God, please don't check into ANA, right? Like, <laughs> thank you. Like, I mean, I mean, you could, but then like, please contextualize it with like a whole bunch of other things that would go with. Lupus, it shouldn't be right? your first test. So, so let's put it. No. Yeah. So, so I would, people ask me that all the time. And I, I say, you know, there's like my, my threshold for checking an ANA does not hinge on one thing alone. And it, and I've listened to the carb ciders and I know that that's, that's not recommended. So I am in line with that. Um, but I do sometimes depending on the patient and their age. Um, sometimes I check a thyroid and a chemistry panel. Sometimes I'll check an ESR and a hematocrit. And then the thing that you'll read about a lot is the ferritin, um, which is sort of a reflection of total body uh, iron storage, right? And so there's lore from the literature that we like ferritin greater than 40 for this. But in all honesty, the value of such numbers is pretty poorly studied. And of course, vitamin D is implicated in everything. So I always recommend making sure that that's, you know, normal and supplementing it if it's quite low. Uh, again, but like the data around these things is pretty shaky. Okay. So a limited lab workup. Please don't order an ANA unless you have a lot of evidence that the person has lupus. And, and you can listen to our episode on that if you if you need a refresher. Let's go on to the second case. Beth, do you want to read uh, the next part? Actually, I should say, well, is there any or is there any treatment we're going to offer? Well, for telogen effluvium, it sounds like there's not any treatment we're going to offer. Just, you know, tell her, become zen, give it some time, self-care. give it some time, self-care, it should come back. For the alopecia areata or for the androgenetic alopecia, any any great treatments we can offer? Yeah, so for alopecia areata, that can be pretty distressing. For those patients, I would probably start by giving them a topical steroid because that's something you could give them from your primary care clinic. But I would get them into the hands of a dermatologist pretty quickly Mm -hmm. because that can cause complete total body baldness. It's autoimmune. It has a variable course. It can be very stressful, right? So for those patients, I do think they're best served by derm. For androgenic alopecia, I'd say the standard of you know, the kind of the mainstay, I would say, is uh, topical minoxidil, which, of course, is now over the counter. Mm-hmm. Um, there are two boxes. One says for men and one says for women. I tell all the ladies to go get the men. <laughs> um, I'm not even really sure they ever studied the dose of the women. I tried to look into this oh, once. Gosh. So it's 5% for everybody. Um, so you're going to use the man. It comes in either a foam or a solution. Neither are terribly cosmetically elegant. Um, and... Um, and you can give that a try. There is a paradoxical shedding of hair as you start to use it. So you have to counsel patients about this. And I always tell patients, you know, the hair follicle bulb, like when we do the biopsies of the scalp, they are really deep. I mean, they are really down there. So I require them to use it, you know, nightly for at least 16 weeks before we even decide if it's not working. Um, and if you look at the studies, you know, it won't work for everybody. So if they come back and they say, I did that and it didn't work, clarify that they did it long enough and that they didn't just quit when they had a, you know, kind of that paradoxical shedding. But yeah, some percentage of patients will have a lot of response to this. The problem is if it's androgenic alopecia, you have to keep using it or the hair starts to fall out again. Okay. And then if it's beyond that, if the patient's terribly distressed, wants to be a lot more proactive, um, get them into the hands of a dermatologist. We do a lot of things systemically um, for this if patients are terribly emotionally disturbed um, or troubled by this. Um, But as you guys all know, it's completely benign and of no consequence to their overall health. 
And the other thing I would say is um, that I would use topical minoxidil or offer it too to some patients with telogen effluvium just because this can be so emotionally troubling for some people. Um, I don't know with certainty that it really changes the course of things because, of course, we all expect this to come back anyway. But for some patients, they just really need to feel like they're being proactive. And I think the, the harm is really low, the risk. That's great yeah. advice. It's better than what I was going to say, which was going to be a joke about celebrities regaining hair, uh, which I think is probably more hair transplant stuff happening. There's hair transplants. There's all kinds of – there's ways to bind up testosterone um, with uh, spironolactone. Dermatology will do that sometimes. Um, But, you know, I think that's beyond the scope of what you guys might see or want to manage in your outpatient clinic. And what about finasteride? Is that something that would – should be best served by the hands of a dermatologist or is that something that... Absolutely. We have a long conversation. So, um, you know, we actually do use it in some postmenopausal women. Um, and we have a long conversation with relatively young men about the risk of uh, potential um, non-reversible erectile dysfunction with that medication. Um, so um, I, I don't know. I think a dermatologist is pretty comfortable having that conversation and doing that counseling and sort of sussing through the risk benefits and side effects of those um, sort of more advanced options. Beth, let's move on. We, we're going to talk a little bit more scalp because I felt really weak on that. And I think this is, it's great to have uh, our chief of dermatology here to teach us more scalp stuff. So let's go to the second case. So our second case features a Mr. Pete A. Toehead, um, and he's a 65-year-old balding white man who presents to the clinic complaining of red skin and flaking of his scalp. He wants to know if this is psoriasis. On exam, he has red oily skin on his scalp, eyebrows, cheeks, and involvement of the nasolabial folds. He's had this problem on and off for years and thinks it improves with warm weather. So what are some of the common scalp complaints that we might be seeing and how are we going to differentiate them, such as psoriasis versus seborrheic um, dermatitis? Yeah, really, really common question. And my residents know that I give a lecture on scale types and scale quality. It's a whole hour (laughs) on different kinds of scale. Um, It's really tedious. It's a lot of fun. It will save you. And so that's one of the things you're going to do here. And then, of course, just like in real estate, it's going to be location, 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 because psoriasis is usually not just on the face or scalp. It can be, but you're going to go looking for clues. And that's what the most fun thing is about derm. Um, And that's why patients are always like, it's just, I just have this thing in my head. Like, why do you want me in a gown? It's almost never like that. You want your patient in a gown because you're going to go looking in those common areas. Okay. So let's see which pictures we have here. First one we have is scalp psoriasis. And do you see how it tends to kind of march a little bit forward on the hairline? Like quite a bit onto the forehead Mm -hmm. actually, right? And then on the picture on the right, it's got that beautiful, white, chalky, thin. Anyone have an idea what word we use for that kind of scale? It's, it's micaceous scale, like the rock. Um, that fine, flaky. If you were to pick that off, you'd have something called the Offspitz sign, which is like a little tet, like pinpoint area of bleeding based on how psoriasis looks under the microscope. Um, but little pinpoint dots of bleeding under there. Um, and so that's that sort of classic micaceous scale there. Okay. Um, and if we go to the next picture, this was a patient from Cashlack just a, a couple days ago. Um, and this gentleman is under partial treatment and he mostly had scalp psoriasis that was recalcitrant and left. So again, I like to use my cotton tipped applicator and use the, the business end of it, which is the flip side um, to part hair. And if you go to the next picture, it's sort of zooming in and lo and behold, you'll see little 
you know, recalcitrant flakes of that micaceous scale there and that erythema. And I think there might even be one more picture. Yeah, perfect. Do you see it? Yeah, perfect. And this gentleman, like, how you're like, oh, God, this is hard. Like, how do I know that's not, you know, seborrheic dermatitis? Well, he had other patches. Where are your classic psoriasis patches, right? Elbows, knees, gluteal cleft, belly button. Um, and they're very kind of classic, well-defined, psoriatic, erythematous plaques with that micaceous scale over the top. So you have to do total body skin exam to really kind of have an, a level of certainty. Is there less of that oiliness with this than there is with seborrheic dermatitis? Exactly. So seborrheic dermatitis, right? Seborrheic dermatitis is the greasy scale, the oily scale, okay? So these are sharply demarcated patches, very similar to psoriasis in that way. And they kind of vary from pink yellow to like red brown bran-like with greasy scales. And if you think about the pathogenesis of seborrheic dermatitis, there's this predilection for areas that are rich in sebaceous glands, right? So that's scalp, face, ears, gentlemen's, and some women too will have a little bit patch like on their sternal area as well. Um, And there's a mild course to it with very little or moderate discomfort at best. Super common in babies. I know we're internists here, but there's an infantile form and an adult form. And if you did this the rest of your exam, you would find that there's absolutely nothing else outside of those areas. And so location, location, location will really help you. Um, this is caused by Malassezia or Pitarosporum species, um, which are lipophilic yeasts. And so if you remember the pathophys, sometimes it helps you to remember where to look. And that's part of the normal resident flora of the skin. And so it just sort of in some people that have a certain number of host factors causes this rash when that yeast gets high enough on the skin. Um, something to remember is that if they've never had this before and they have a pretty, you know, impressive onset, it can be a cutaneous sign of HIV. Um, And something else that we notice very frequently is that it can flare after neurologic injury. So we see this very commonly in folks with Parkinson's disease. We see it after strokes. Um, We actually see it after resection of brain tumors sometimes, and nobody really knows why that is. It's really fascinating. That is crazy. I, I saw a gentleman once that had like just horrible alcohol withdrawal. Maybe he might have had like a concussion or something. I don't think he had any like brain surgery, but he had the, like the worst that I checked him for HIV, which he did not have. But I was just like, I I was like, I was like, I'm going to catch it. It's got to be HIV. This guy's, I've never seen it this bad, but it was. Mm -hmm. uh, And I think in the next couple of pictures, I have a patient with HIV. Actually, this is not the patient, but here's that greasy brand like scale. If you go back, just, just a, it's just a lovely picture of that sort of greasy scale. It doesn't have that same mica like that shiny white color to it. And it's right there in that nasolabial fold, classic location. And it's got that kind of waxy look to it. So that's a different kind of scale. And then if you go to the next one, this is a patient with HIV. And you can see the sort of all the classic areas. If you look up into his hairline here, you can see that it's up into the hair. It doesn't extend quite as far onto the forehead the way psoriasis sometimes likes to do. And then it's sort of medial eyebrows, very classically. Um, And then he also had it down in his beard as well. Um, you can see some of the flakiness sort of down in through here. And he had a little patch on his chest. So that was sort of a perfect distribution. I think the next the next thing we want to know about this, let's let's take seborrheic dermatitis first. What's your go-to treatment for that? What do you think is easiest? Because it's in areas with hair, so creams can be a little bit difficult. 
Yeah, for sure. So my favorite thing to do for this is pretty simple. I prescribe ketoconazole shampoo. Um, and I have people use it as both a face and a body wash, you know, in all the areas that are involved. That works really well for all skin types and hair textures. That facial and body wash is fine. Um, you could also combine that with ketoconazole cream twice a day. So kind of a double hit there. Um, so for the scalp involvement, though, it's really important to be sensitive. So textured hair types do better with a totally different approach for a couple reasons. One, most of the commercial uh, and prescription medicated shampoos are really harsh and drying, and they make they strip hair types of all their um, essential oils that keep them soft and pliant and pliable. Um, and I've had patients tell me it makes their hair feel kind of like a Brillo pad, kind of crunchy almost. Um, and so um, it's really unrealistic to tell somebody to wash their hair every day with a medicated shampoo like that, because all that they're going to do is break off their hair, and that's going to be disturbing to them. So for them, I try to use something that's a little more emollient. And so you can actually give them a steroid lotion, ask them, you know, what do you, what do you style your hair with? What do you like to condition your scalp with? Some people will tell you they use a pomade, or they use a, like an ointment texture is fine, a cream, some people want a slippery lotion, and you can give them a very mild topical steroid that they can use and they just sort of part the hair, put a little bit on their finger and run it down and that should keep things at bay. Um, And finally, companies have gotten really smart about this. They realize that there's different kinds of hair types that respond differently. And so there's a number of commercial products now that are on the shelf at your local pharmacy that are actually geared towards different kinds of hair type. Um, And so there's some medicated commercial uh, over-the-counter shampoos that are specifically for African hair types, which is really, really lovely. But remember that um, some folks only wash their hair, you know, once a week sometimes because of the way that they style it and because of the fact that they just don't have that much moisture in their hair. And so I think avoiding a medicated shampoo for those folks is really reasonable. And so you have to be really comfortable asking somebody, tell me how often you wash your hair, right? If you wash your hair, like I have to wash my hair every day because I'm a grease bomb. Um, You know, if you wash your hair every day, then a medicated shampoo is perfect. But if you wash your hair every other week because you wear it a particular style or because it's very dry, then you're not going to get away with a shampoo at all. So sort of a a plug for being um, culturally sensitive in your care. Do you ever use, I know there's some steroid like foaming agents for hair for steroids. Do you, or do you have any go-to one that you use or is that just not worth the money? It's, it's like, I am not brand loyal. Surely. Um, my, my patients run the gamut from completely uninsured to like, right. I just meant, is there like a generic foam, like steroid foam or is it, are those all like branded more expensive products? Yeah, I think fluorescent alone, um, like lotion or ointment, um, is reasonable. Again, ask somebody what they like to put in their hair, because if you prescribe them an ointment and they're like, wow, I'm a grease bomb, I would really prefer to have something like a, uh, like a solution, which is alcohol based, right? Um, if you're deep in these weeds and you're like, wow, I then really send them don't. to Derma. <laughs> no, just send them to us. Okay. And we'll, you know, there's literally every type of steroid usually comes in every type of vehicle. Um, And sometimes it's just a conversation about what they want to use and what's covered by their insurance. All right. And what potency are you you typically going with? I try Uh, to go as low as possible. Um, yeah. you know, and as, and as little as possible. So that's another important thing about it. Um, to kickstart things, I'll tell people, you know, go home and do this like every day this week, but this for them is going to come back, right? This is a combination of host and yeast 
on the earth. <laughs> okay. And so are they going to cure themselves of this? Not at all. So there's sort of treatment phase and maintenance phase. And I tell everyone your mileage may vary. You know, some people find that they just have to use this like on the weekends, if that's an easy way to remember it. So two days out of the week to kind of keep things quiet once it's calmed down. Other people like to do like Monday, Wednesday, Friday, once it's clear, but this is really never going to be gone for them. It's going to require some degree of, of, uh, maintenance. And you and you mess around with the pot- potency of the steroid because fluosinolide is a high potency, right? But you so you might start there and then back off to a couple times a week, or if you can get can some, can some people get by with like a medium potency? I guess it just depends. It just depends. Okay. Yeah. And for psoriasis, would it be a similar thing, or should people with psoriasis of the scalp be coming to see a dermatologist? psoriasis can be similar. It can be fine. The thing is that, you know, psoriasis tends to be a systemic disease. Yeah. Right? So, I mean, that's a different conversation. You're talking about, you know, what other systemic uh, manifestations do you have? It's most commonly arthritis and most typically, you know, an an oligoarthritis uh, and asymmetric usually sort of in the small joints of the hands and feet. So that's an exam that you're going to have to do. Um, But it can also be associated with depression, metabolic syndrome. There's more and more data to support that it's associated with increased uh, incidence of cardiovascular disease and moderate to severe cases. So this is truly like a systemic inflammatory condition. If it's just limited to the scalp or it's a little patch somewhere, um, I think it's very reasonable that, that they just start to treat it with something topical. But you know, if they've got psoriatic arthritis, those folks are usually managed by both derm and rheumatology because then we can choose biologic agents that work well for both the skin and the joints because some of them do double duty. And then our toolbox in dermatology is so much bigger than just topicals. Like we do photochemotherapy, we've got methotrexate, we've got all these different um, immunomodulators, which are sort of the biologic therapies. And so, you know, I think it's reasonable that you would give a moderate potency topical steroid, again, in whatever sort of uh, vehicle the patient wants to use. Um, But beyond that, I'd say feel free to go ahead and refer them on. All right. So leaving this topic I'm going to say that we we talked about the main differentiator that we should think of is like looking to if we're not sure if it's psoriasis or not, look in all the places, uh, elbows, knees, gluteal cleft, look for other signs of psoriasis. And the scale is a little bit more of that whiter micaceous scale, not the yellow mm-hmm. greasy scale. Um, and I think that's that's a good starting point for people. And then keto. Con- yeah. And you don't tend to get psoriasis like yeah. in your medial eyebrows or nasolabial folds. Yeah. Okay. Let's go on to our next case. We're going to move down to the face here. And uh, I think this one will be a little bit quicker. So, Paul, you want to? Sure. So we're now going to. I I apologize for having Latin in this, (laughs) Paul. I'm sorry. (laughs) And shout out to any Latin nerds who can guess what I'm getting at with the the Latin. I totally got it. (laughs) (laughs) I don't speak Latin, though. Me neither. Shout out to our Latin nerds. All right. Um, <laughs> God. Rose Papilio is a Hispanic female who has noticed a worsening facial rash. She thought it could be from getting a bit too much sun, but she has noticed it even when she hasn't gone outside for long periods of time. On exam, she has an erythematous rash involving the tip of her nose and cheeks with scattered papules, but no pustules. The nasolabial folds are spared. In the past, this rash has also involved her forehead and chin. And so I guess the question that we're sort of starting out is, what might we be dealing with here? And then sort of how, how can we narrow it down? So why don't we just start broadly? Um, And then we can sort of talk about individual topics as they come up. Yeah. So this is a worsening facial rash and it happened after the sun. So already your spidey sensors are going off, hopefully for something systemic and sort of dangerous. 
And but it's involving the tip of her nose, which is sort of notable. No pustules. Nasal labial folds are spared. And she's also had some involvement in the past of her forehead and chin. So I mean, I think some of the things you'd want to think about, of course, a central face rash after photo exposure, you have to think of systemic lupus, right? Like all of us are internists, you don't want to miss it. Um, So that's obviously, I think, sometimes the question stem leads you somewhere. But the more common things that this is probably, right, is acne and rosacea, um, especially since she's had it on her chin. Um, And so I think one of the things that's difficult for folks is, you know, how do I differentiate acne from rosacea? What do I, how do I really know what I'm looking at? It's like almost like an Aunt Millie. Like, you know, your Aunt Millie's, be- your Aunt Millie because she just is. Like, you see that and you know it. So, acne is sometimes that way, but sometimes it's not, right? So, I thought it would be fun to sort of walk through, like, what are the actual clinical features of acne, right? That would make you feel better about being able to differentiate these things. Okay. So um, acne really only mimics one of the four sub, like various subtypes of rosacea. So it's actually only a mimic of uh, papular pustular rosacea. There's other kinds. Um, and sometimes it's actually really, really hard. One of the things that I'll go back to because derm is medicine is that you really want to know the history, right? I don't know if we knew the age of this girl. Um, but you know, Think about the age group. Acne is very common, uh, affects about 85% of young people between the ages of uh, 12 and 24 years old. Um, and it can start as young as seven, okay? Uh, and while we tend to think about it as a disease of young people, it can actually persist into adulthood as well. Um, and if you think of it, again, I like to think about diseases by their pathophysiology. What acne is, is it's a disease of the pilosebaceous unit right? So there's three factors kind of coming into play. There's follicular hyperkeratinization, there's hormonal influences on sebum production, and then there's inflammation, which is mediated by a specific bacterium, which has been newly renamed, because why shouldn't they rename things so we can memorize them? Um, And it's cutie bacterium acnes, okay? So it used to be P acnes, and now it's C acnes. (laughs) Okay. But it makes you Uh, feel like not a cutie. Why did they (laughs) know it's not a cutie? But if you annihilate it, or at least put it back into balance, you will be feeling so cutie. (laughs) So cutie, right? So let's look at some pictures here. This is acne. um, And here's a patient um, that has some, uh, go back to the first one, Beth. Perfect. Yeah. So here you can see in this patient with brown skin that there are a number of things. You see um, sort of dome-shaped, you know, kind of purple nodules um, and even maybe some cysts here. Um, And on the right-hand side, you can see those like little ice pick scars. Do you see that? And that post-inflammatory hyperpigmentation, very, very classic. And if you look up on the bridge of the nose of this patient on the right, you can see those very like monomorphic sort of dome-shaped papules and that sort of very faint sort of reddish or purple color on the background of her brown skin. Let's flip to the next one. On the next one, here's a patient from Cashlack, um, and you can see that she has very fine, almost sandpapery dome-shaped papules over sort of the T-zone of her face, if you think about it that way. So it's sort of the forehead. She's got them a little bit over the bridge of the nose. She's got them over the cheeks. Um, You can see that even on the lateral, like up onto the zygoma here. You can see, and she's got some ice pick scarring. She's got some dark sort of shadows of where pimples used to be. That's called post-inflammatory hyperpigmentation. Next one. And then if you examine her further, because of course you're going to examine her further because that's you're looking at skin, so you want your patient in a gown, um, you'll see that she's even got a little bit on her chest, and she's even keloiding. 
Like, do you see that one very prominent one sort of down by the edge of her gown? So that was actually a very firm keloid. So some patients will keloid from their acne. Um, and then if you look at her back, she's got similar. She's got, you know, similar sort of fine papules there. So what, what are you actually seeing, right? So that's acne. That's your Aunt Millie, right? So there's things about it, right? There's a blackhead, right? Blackhead, like we always talk about, like teenagers will talk about their blackheads. So that's actually called an open comedone. And what that is, is that dilated follicular opening um, with the shed keratin inside. If you see those, then it's probably not rosacea, right? Um, the other thing is we talk about whiteheads, right? Whiteheads are what we call closed comedones. And those are those very monomorphic dome-shaped papules. And you can almost see these better with side lighting sometimes than straight on, just like we saw in our last patient. And then the first picture that Beth showed, that's inflammatory acne, right? So those are those papules, pustules, and nodules of various severity. Sometimes they're even filled with like purulent material. Um, and they can be pseudocystic or deep or nodular or painful. Um, and then in women, you can have a hormonal variant that's on the lower one third of the face. Um, and so we, I always say to patients, like, do you tend to get you know, cyclic acne in the same area where a man grows a beard? Um, and that's sort of another variant of acne. But that's sort of what you're looking at. And in rosacea, so since the question was, you know, how do I tell these two things apart? There are sort of four subtypes of rosacea. The uh, papulopustular subtype is the type that is a mimic of acne. Um, and that is a centrofacial eruption. Okay, so very much in through here, like in through this triangle, whereas acne tends to be in those other areas that I described. And these are multiple, quite small, usually like smaller than three millimeters, Again, erythematous papules that occur kind of singly or in crops. And the history here is super important because patients will tell you that they have had a long history of exceedingly sensitive skin. Um, they often have a history of flushing, easy flushing, and it ends up being replaced by after it heals in like one to two weeks by this sort of blotchy post-inflammatory erythema. Okay, that gradually fades over about 10 days. And one really important feature about rosacea is that it doesn't tend to scar like the, the ice pick scars that I showed you with the acne. Rosacea does not tend to do that. Okay, so that's kind of fun too. If you're seeing ice pick scarring or sort of boxcar scarring, as we call it, that's probably a sign that it's acne too. Is that helpful? Yeah, absolutely. Right. And, and I imagine like if you're seeing, if someone has acne on their, like lesions on their chest and their back, you're probably not thinking rosacea. I guess maybe they could have both, but that's that it would seem yeah. like it would exactly location, location, location. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, the age of your patient rosacea is much more common in middle age or like in patients at least, you know, in the, into their, I mean, I think the youngest end of that would be probably in their twenties. Right. Whereas acne much more common. Mm -hmm. um, but most like your classic rosacea patients, somebody middle-aged, and for which is different for the type of rosacea that is like more in the malar rash distribution, sparing mm -hmm. the nasolabial folds, it has fooled me before. Where I'm worried, mm -hmm. like, could this be lupus? Is there a good mm -hmm. way to d differentiate that base? Yes. Yeah, please. Yes, that's a great question. So <laughs> I have to bring you this Scrabble word because it's just so fun. Okay. So that is a different sub. So that's not really the popular variant of rosacea, right? The acne mimic. This is erythematotelangiectatic rosacea. Okay. We call it ETT for short. Um, and so um, history is your friend here, 
Okay, so those are more telangiectatic, that very bright pink, that almost lupus pink color. I know it's a, it, it can be really tricky, um, but remember that acute lupus erythematosus is, is really rapid in onset. Like I've seen it with a history of sometimes even just several hours in a sick patient. Oh, wow. Um, you know, hours to weeks is kind of what we think about. Uh, and of course, you're going to look at the rest of the skin exam too, right? So look at their hands. You get a ton of photo exposure on your hands, and the rash of lupus on your hands tends to spare the knuckles. So if you're wearing a big ring that says lupus on it, that's how I remember it, like <laughs> lupus. Um, <laughs> you know, and it spares the knuckles because you get a you know, photo exposure here, and, and everyone gets a lot of UV radiation here. So it's never just one area that you're looking at in dermatology. Um, and then also they may have ulcers in their mouth super commonly. Um, I guess I shouldn't say super commonly. Not uncommonly if they're having an acute lupus flare. Look in the mouth because you'll find ulcers. Um, but yes, that telangiectatic variant of, of, of rosacea um, is really, really tricky because they can be bright, bright red and it can spare the nasolabial folds in a similar way. Yeah. So, but, but that's Smolders. looking at it and, and that's looking at it in just like an isolated picture. But if you have the history that like this wasn't there yesterday, it's here today and I have ulcers in my mouth or like joint pains, then obviously mm -hmm. that's yeah. more concerning. So that ETT variant of, of, of rosacea will smolder. All right. Like that's not going to be the same onset. We're not going to talk about how to treat lupus, but let's talk let's talk about like what what treatment should we have in our back pocket for rosacea as an internist? Um Yeah. Let's say for the um, the ETT variant, is there anything we can do? So, UV protection. Um I know dermatologists are always harping on it, but these people tend to be pretty sensitive to the sun um for a couple reasons. One, um just the ambient heat causes dilation of those blood vessels, oh, yeah. sort of makes things redder. And and so I always recommend that my rosacea patients wear um, a big broad-brimmed hat um, and that they use like a very reliable SPF 30 or higher, ideally very gentle mineral-based sunscreen. Okay, so that's going to be zinc or titanium-based for sensitive skin. Uh, because remember that your rosacea patients tend to be pretty sensitive. It's often a little bit like they get very dry and very irritated. Um, and so very gentle face care, make sure that they're not using any harsh washes, um, super gentle emollients. And then if you want a if you want to start with a prescription, I think metronidazole 1% cream is a very reasonable place to start. But I will be honest with you, for the telangiectatic variant, like in the last picture that we saw, it is not that um, effective. For those types of telangiectatic type, honestly, for something as severe as what we're looking at, PDL laser is probably the best place to start. Um, and then we can often sometimes use topical um, vasoconstriction medications as well um, to temporarily sort of shrink things down. Um, depending on your patient's background skin tone, some people think it makes them look a little ghosty or like a little bit dead. Um, so it's better in sort of an olive skin toned patient to do something like that. Um, but there's several prescriptions now that you can get. Um, any of the, is it, was it sulfacetamic acid or I, so there's some sort so of- So for the papular pustular variant of rosacea, absolutely. Sulfur washes are, are wonderful. Okay. Um, you can also use the metronidazole cream. And then sometimes there's even your little friend, the Demodex mite, which they'll, I'll show you a picture of here. And the Demodex mite uh, sometimes is implicated. They're on everybody's skin. So they're on yours and mine too. Um, but in rosacea, sometimes they're really rampant. And so sometimes we'll actually treat for that too. Oh, wow. Yep. I have one question about identification of rosacea. Um, in 
non-white skin and particularly in black skin, I actually mm-hmm. really struggled to find a reference photo for rosacea in uh, any black people. And I was wondering if if it's just less common or if you could talk a little bit about identification of rosacea on black skin. I love that you asked that, Beth. That's wonderful. Um, so actually, uh, rosacea is underdiagnosed in black skin. You've hit on a couple issues here. One, dermatology textbooks do not include enough pictures of rashes in brown skin. And our patients are suffering for it, um, which is why I try to include all different kinds of skin types in all my talks. Super important. And two, because the erythema is more subtle on a background of brown skin, um, it is underdiagnosed. Absolutely. Sometimes you can look at the eyes. One, an, another type of rosacea that we didn't talk about is ocular rosacea. So sometimes patients will have a little bit of ocular rosacea as well, and that can be a clue. But you're absolutely right. It would be difficult to find a photo. Um, I wish I had taken more pictures in my residency because we saw uh, quite a few black patients with rosacea. I think the history is helpful. If they have a longstanding history of very sensitive skin and that central facial involvement with the bumps and you're not seeing those comedone types, then um, I think you're on the right track. For for our patients in primary care that have that central like papular or pustular rosacea or that have acne with a moderate amount of lesions, like too much to just cover with a cream, should we be comfortable prescribing someone doxycycline or medications like that? What do you, what do you think? And what should be like our, maybe just like our first, first line, uh, topical and any oral agents? Really good question. Um, so a review of like their cosmetics, which is, it can be a time sink. So you just have to do kind of a cursory, mm-hmm. you know, tell me what you put on your face. Um, cosmetics, sunscreens, cleansers, and moisturizers. Really just sort of have the patient think about that while you're doing some other things. And what you really want to do is have the patient look and make sure that they're non-comedogenic, okay, if you think it's acne. Um, because you'll really be chasing your tail if the if you're treating acne and then they're putting on some kind of anti-aging product or some of the like very sort of uh, high coverage foundations are sort of worse than others for making acne. Um, so really have to, you kind of do have to ask about it, but you can give them that homework project. So give them the word non comedogenic and tell them to go home and think about everything that goes on their face. And then second, you know, in terms of treatment, the treatment for acne and rosacea is quite different. If you're talking to a young patient, you have to consider whether or not she's considering a pregnancy in the near future. You know, it depends on how old this patient is. If she's premenopausal, then you do have to sort of open the door to talk about her plans for a family for a couple of reasons. One, our toolbox for what we can use to, for the treatment of acne in a pregnant woman goes from like lots of things to like three things. So that's really important. And two, you know, oral contraceptive pills are treatment for acne. And so if she desires both treatment for acne and contraception, then that's actually usually a very good fit in that way. Um, if she doesn't, and we're talking about acne, then I would say topical retinoids are the gold standard. It's a really good face first place to start. We now have one retinoid available over the counter. It's a dapoline. Um, it's sort of the, the, on the weaker end of the retinoids, um, but it's certainly easy to get. It's pretty mild. And they, if you counsel them how to use it, um, they can get started. Um, what you want to tell them is that they want to use a pea-sized amount, like a little English pea, and you want to apply that amount to the whole face. Is that the one if that you start use to feel, at night because of the sun? Yes. Okay. Yeah. But, and and what, what's up with the sun? I you heard know? it deactivates sort of it or something. Yes. Isn't that fun? 
It's actually true for only some of the retinoids, but we just tell everyone to put it on at night. They can go ahead and put their moisturizer over it. I think what people uh, don't know is that as you're starting to use a retinoid, you should experience what we call retinoid dermatitis, okay? So your acne will look worse, everything will be redder, Yay. and you'll be drier, <laughs> okay? And it's a pea-sized amount to your whole face, similar amount for the chest, and like maybe double that for the back if it's involved, okay? People are using way too much medicine because they're not counseled on it, and they're getting ripping retinoid dermatitis because they're supposed to, oh, uh. right? And so um, they never see it through long enough to see the benefits, so I joke with my patients, I say, don't Yelp me, which I'll be honest, I don't even think I'm on Yelp, but you know, don't call my office in two weeks and say like, I'm terrible, my acne's worse, she doesn't know what she's doing. Um, I tell them, this is not dating, this is marriage. You know, you have to just work out the tough parts and you, you're not going to see benefit in two weeks, I promise you. Do not start this before a wedding. You know, don't start this before your class reunion <laughs> or whatever, your graduation. Um, you really aren't going to see things getting better until that six to 12 weeks. I usually do acne follow-ups for patients at three months because by then everything is like luminous and smooth and getting better and glorious. And if they're having trouble, I ask them to call me. Like if they, if they can't tolerate it, then we have to figure out what they're doing wrong or we have to figure out a different formulation. Yeah. Can I ask, I would feel like I would be remiss in not bringing this up. But as we are in the time of COVID, I feel like mask knee is a particular. Oh my gosh! You know, I almost put it in like as a as a as a case because I was, and then I was like, well, maybe that's yeah. going to date the whole episode, and nobody so will care much about mask knee. That's yeah. But I, I wonder, it does, we don't spend a whole lot of time if you had any sort of practical tips. Oh, yes. I feel like I'm going to start a mask knee clinic for all the nurses <laughs> and docs I'm seeing that's just like curb, you know, curbsiding me. Hey, yeah, uh, sure. in the hallway. Um, yes, uh, it's basically acne mechanica. There's all these different kinds of acne that derms are so name, dorky about. Cow. Yeah. So yeah. what it is, is it's basically acne mechanica. Um, and you will see the same thing in like your football player, your hockey player, your lacrosse player. It's like that friction and the sweat and the moisture. And and so I, I am finding that I'm having a lot of luck with sulfur washes. Caveat, if you get them in your nose hairs, they smell terrible. <laughs> All day in your mask. Okay. So, but you know, there's a number of sulfur based washes, even bar soaps that you can get. You can get them on Amazon, you can get them in like your drugstore. Um, and so that's been pretty helpful using a benzyl peroxide wash. Um, for any type of acne, I tend to use 4% or higher. The higher you go, the more drying it gets. So if you're coupling it with a retinoid, again, you kind of have to counsel. It's really wonderful for like chest and back acne as well. It's easy to wash. And that can work a little bit for the mask knee too. But honestly, I know we all have our like favorite, I wish mine was nearby, but like your favorite cute little cloth mask that you're like doing your social part and wearing, you know, make sure you have several of those because they do need to get washed. For the longest time, I had like one really cute one. And I was like, oh, man, I got to I gotta branch out. I got to get more. Um, it's a little better in the hospital. And I know we're trying to conserve PPE, but try to change them out. If you're really having a lot of trouble, try to change them out. When do you think about topical uh, antibiotics or systemic antibiotics? Good question. So um, we, I think, in dermatology are moving away for, from the use of chronic antibiotics for acne. Mm -hmm. um, and in fact, that is one of the indications for Accutane. Okay. So um, because there's so much antimicrobial resistance and we don't want to contribute to that, and because we know that uh, isotretinoin is, is the um, non-branded name, 
uh, is so safe. Somebody who cannot get off of antibiotics without flares of their acne needs their acne cured. <laughs> and that's what isotretinoin does. Um, so please refer those patients to Derm. Anybody who has a lot of scarring, anybody who's starting to have a lot of scarring, even better. They have disfiguring post-inflammatory hyperpigmentation. I consider that scarring. Those patients need Accutane. That is very psychologically distressing. And so dermatology is happy to see those patients. Um, the other point I do want to make before I forget to say it, because I don't think I got to it before, is that, you know, retinoids are teratogenic. Obviously, there's like a whole um, online pregnancy screening prevention federal program for isotretinoin. Technically, although the risks are low, we do counsel women of reproductive age to stop their topical retinoid with their first pregnancy test positive. So just something to remember about your counseling. And yeah, that's acne in a nutshell. Wow. Okay. Helena, I so I think we're pretty much set on acne, but I, I had mentioned the systemic antibiotics like doxycycline is one I've seen. So mm-hmm. for rosacea, is that ever a right thing to do? Absolutely. So that is actually another way that acne and rosacea are different from one another. Um, We use doxycycline a lot in dermatology, not really for its antimicrobial properties so much, but because it's so beautifully anti-inflammatory in the skin. So um, I don't mean to say we never use it in acne, but if you need recurrent courses, um, then please refer that on. But for rosacea, because it is so beautifully anti-inflammatory and it penetrates the skin so well, um, we do tend to use low-dose doxycycline. There have been studies that show that um, 40 milligrams, of which 30 milligrams is extended release and 10 milligrams is immediate, is um, very effective at decreasing some of the inflammation, assuming you have the papular pustular variant like our or patient, ocular Rose. type, like our patient, Rose. And with that lower dose, um, you get all the benefits that you were going to get and you have fewer side effects. Because it usually, I think it usually comes in 50 or 100 milligrams. Is it, is it a special mm-hmm. formulation that we have to order? There's a special long acting formulation that's branded. I will tell you several of my patients cannot afford that. So I have done low dose immediate release doxycycline at 50 and um, it's done a pretty good job too. All right. So that might've been an option for Rose and we can also give her, we said metronidazole, some sort of topical uh, cream or, or gel maybe. And zinc or titanium sunscreen and a gentle face wash. All right. Then she's off. Great. So we, we for the listener at home, we had many more cases <laughs> and this would have turned into a four hour episode. This would have been the Inagata de Vida of Curbsiders <laughs> episode. So I think this might be a good breaking point. Suffice it to say, there there were some great names and some great cases that, Helena, we may ask you to come back and work through with us. Um, I don't want to give too much away, but there is a Fergie Sturgeson <laughs> just waiting for us to discuss her her medical issues. So I'll, I'll let the listeners decide what that might be when we actually get to it. But I think we're going to need to split this up into a couple more episodes because we have so much more territory to cover. Um, so having said that, Helena, if you wouldn't mind telling us uh, just some of your take-home points for for the discussion we had about the stuff that's been above the shoulders so far. Yeah. Wow. What a, what a whirlwind we've already been through. So for <laughs> alopecia, consider your patient. Um, and if you see any evidence of scarring, please be assertive in getting them to a dermatologist um, because that type of scarring hair loss can be permanent. If it is various ca- caliber of hair um, hair shafts, then that might be androgenic alopecia. We talked about how to treat that. And if it's not, um, just remember there's a lot of stress out there. There's a lot of um, telogen effluvium, and that luckily has a very good prognosis. With the seborrheic dermatitis versus the psoriasis, two different pathophysiologies, 
psoriasis is a systemic disease. Look at all the different locations. Um, feel free, please, to send any moderate or severe disease to dermatology. Uh, we have lots of great tools to take care of that disease. Uh, for mild disease, please feel free to give them a topical steroid. Um, and several patients are quite um, happy with that option. For seborrheic dermatitis, remember this could be a presenting sign of HIV. So please check that in the appropriate patient. And for uh, acne versus rosacea, wow, what a cage match. Um, <laughs> I didn't expect to talk so much about acne, but, um, you know, it's it's sort of make sure that you, you train your eye, that you know what you're looking at for people who tend to keloid or who have a predisposition for uh, post-inflammatory hyperpigmentation. Please consider that that is disfiguring um, and get them to a sort of... Uh, uh, treatment, often with Accutane early, earlier rather than later, but otherwise a topical retinoid would be your gold standard with the appropriate counseling that we talked about. Uh, for rosacea, um, remember that antibiotics do have more of a role um, in that condition. Uh, and for everybody, very sensitive, uh, gentle skin care because you're either going to have a retinoid or you've got your ro rosacea and your background sensitivity. Uh, never forget your photo protection and uh, find your friendly local uh, board certified dermatologist. We are happy to help you. We're happy to take your referrals um, and we love to teach. And so with that, I think that's uh, essentially what we covered, right? Yeah, this is Any like, questions? I think this is part one, Amazing. part one of the, the skin turnship, which is probably what we'll call these episodes. Uh, something like the in skin at Jeff. <laughs> that was better written. <laughs> Sorry. I'm sorry, though. What now? I... <laughs> David Foster Wallace had terrible skin. That's uh, well known. Does anyone know the most common joke I get when I'm making my rounds? I don't I don't know. Is it is it appropriate for air? It's totally appropriate. Okay. It's like I can tell my six-year-old. Okay. I, I don't Dermatology know. team, give me some skin. Oh, gosh. Oh, gosh. Oh, no. no. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <sighs> People, that... I'm sorry for you. You have to go through that every day. You should be. <laughs> Multiple times. Paul, you never would have made it as a dermatologist. Oh, no, absolutely not. No, I'd have died of shame quickly. So, H Helena, is there anything that you'd like to plug for us? And also, one final question from me. Um, do you have any resources that you can suggest to us to better familiarize identifying lesions and rashes and bumps and lumps on brown skin and black skin, since I have found that pretty lacking in my, in my research? And one thing I know of is Brown Skin Matters on Instagram, and mm -hmm. it's a, a good resource, but I'm definitely looking for more. Yeah. The the one that I think is um, probably the biggest professional society and where you will find a lot more links to wonderful doctors on Instagram and other types of social media is the Skin of Color Society. Um, and they have wonderful um, scientific mentorships, educational endeavors. They have lectureships. They have just uh, all kinds of members from all over the country. Um, everyone is very aware and very focused on this disparity in dermatology. Um, and we are committed to making sure that this is corrected. So that's probably the, the best place to go. Um, but I am proud to say that the American Academy of Dermatology, uh, the Society for Dermatology Hospitalists, which I, I have to plug every time, uh, my favorite group of people, um, everyone is really very busy on this. So hopefully in the next two to five to 10 years, the problem that you are experiencing, Beth, will no longer be a problem. 
there's no lack of cameras now. So I, as long as we're getting the message out, I feel people should be able to take pictures, submit them, uh, and and put get them in textbooks and, and online for people. I will tell you, as I was wandering around Cashlack and in my clinic the other day, when I was talking to patients with deeper skin tones, and I was telling them like, hey, you know, people don't know what this looks like in somebody like you. Patients were so willing to give that consent to be in this talk. Um, and so I, you're absolutely right. I think I think we're all going to, like, you, you do better when you know better, right? Right. Um, and so I, it's just a really exciting time to be fixing this problem. Great. I think that's a fantastic place to end. Thank you so much. My pleasure. And everyone needs to go vote. <laughs> <laughs> Great point. This has been another episode of The Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. Yummy. Get your show notes at thecurbsiders.com forward slash podcast and sign up for our mailing list at thecurbsiders.com forward slash knowledge food to get our weekly show notes in your inbox. We're committed to providing you with high value, practice changing knowledge. And to do that, we need your feedback. So please subscribe, rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. You can contact us at thecurbsiders at gmail.com. Special thanks to our producer for this episode, Beth Garbs Garbatelli, and to our social media team, Beth Garbs Garbatelli on Twitter, Maddie Mad Dog Morgan on Instagram, and Chris the Chew Man Chew on Facebook. Until next time, I've been Dr. Matthew Frank Watto. I've been Beth Garbs Garbatelli. And we would be remiss if we did not thank the amazing Stuart Brigham for composing our theme music that you're hearing right now, as well as thanking Claire Morgan of Notterly for editing our audio. And as always, I remain Dr. Paul Nelson-Williams. Thank you and goodbye. And thanks to our partner, VCU Health Continuing Education, who's helping us offer free CE credits for physicians and other healthcare professionals. Check out curbsiders.vcuhealth.org for more information.